1: Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about Annie Sutton, a lone single mother who lived alone in a shared lodging with a series of strangers. All were friendly and liked her. Except one who loved her a little too much. But how would she cope living with her own stalker? Murder Marley's research used in authentic sources. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. And this is Murder Mile. Episode 141 Annie Sutton and the Stalker Within. Today, I'm standing in Brownhart Gardens in Mayfair, W1. 1 Street East of the electroconvulsive abortion of Elsie Goldsmith, three streets north of the radioactive poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko, one street south of the Europa Hotel, where the flight crew of LL016 were massacred, and four streets northeast of the last brave fight of Tudor Simeneev. coming soon to Murder Miles. Originally called the Duke Street Gardens, Brownhart Gardens is one of those architectural anomalies that the average pedestrian walks by every day, knowing it looks out of place, but never asking why. Surrounded on all sides by mansion blocks, the posh word for flats, Brownhart Gardens is an oblong shaped walled garden with very ornate features. Like a baroque dome pavilion of Portland stone, Paved Italian greenery and a quaint little cafe. But what it's hiding is a large electricity substation. And that epitomises Mayfair. Rich and poor, arty and ugly. Two opposites living side by side, with one on show for the world and the other hidden in shame. Here you will see red-trousered numpties standing next to a shambling mess in filthy rags a snoot of hoity living at large, as life's forgotten few hunker in flappy boxes, and assholes who begin every sentence with the word I, quaffing fizzy wine which costs an annual salary per bottle, next to a homeless man heated only by a damp sleeping bag and a hit of skag. It has pretty much been erased, but 150 years ago, this part of Mayfair was a place of abject poverty. Comprising of Brown Street and Hart Street, this used to be a series of working-class dwellings for the city's poorest, before its demolition in 1888. Situated at 19 Hart Street was a four-story lodging full of 30 people. With many so broke, they were forced to share a room and even a bed with strangers. Living hand to mouth, they could never choose their neighbours. So many simply made the best of it. Some found new pals, but others were left living side by side with someone who would do them harm. As it was here, on Thursday, the 20th of January, 1887, that Annie Sutton would last interact with her fellow lodger, Joseph King. A stalker who lived for her touch, but loved her to death. I love Annie. I'm very fond of her. But if I don't have her, no one else shall. Annie Sutton was typical of many working-class women living in London in the late 1800s. With a cruel, unjust society, burdening her with little more than a limited education and few basic skills, she was reliant on others simply to live, and was doomed to a sad, relentless existence of poverty and failure. Born in a small village near Exeter in 1847, Annie did everything right according to the rules of the day. As with women banned from keeping savings or owning a home, she was married to ensure her survival. Life was hard, but she made do with what little she had. In August 1885, At the St. George's Parish Workhouse in Mount Street, Annie gave birth to a baby boy called Henry, a small pale sprat named after her husband. Together, this little family of three lived an existence with no certainties. They shared a small cramped room with another family, scraped by on an unsustainable pittance, struggled to pay the week's rent or risk eviction and ate a meagre ration, only if and when they worked. And although the chance of little Henry living into adulthood was slim, with a hard-working labourer father and a devoted mother, his odds were better than 50-50. But as cruel as life was for a working-class woman, fate would be even crueler. In the bitter winter of 1885, Annie's husband died. Left bereft and heartbroken, this 40-year-old recent widow and newly single mother was bequeathed nothing but his last wage, a paltry sum, part of which went to pay for his funeral. With no savings, no policies, no pension, no goods of any value, no family to fall back on, and no benefits doled out by the welfare state to provide a small but vital safety net. Once those 27 shillings were spent, she was out. Annie had two choices, cry or fight. To put a roof over her head, food in her belly, and to stop her one-year-old son being sent to the workhouse, Like hundreds of other women within a single square mile, she became a washerwoman, scrubbing the soiled filthy clothes of strangers for pennies. Of course, she could always remarry. But still being in the grip of grief, love had long escaped her heart. By July 1886... Annie and baby Henry had moved to 19 Hart Street in Mayfair, a series of four- and five-storey lodgings which were surrounded by the Duke Street Gardens. Number 19 was a simple brown brick block comprised of eight small rooms on four thin floors, with a basement washroom for bathing and laundry. And being in an era before the luxury of plumped-in gas, water, or electricity, it was heated and lit by fires. But it wasn't an unpleasant place to live. On the ground floor lived the landlady Harriet Pearson, an elderly widow who kept a good house for nice people who looked out for one another. And lacking any communal areas except for the stairwell, she would welcome lodgers into her kitchen to cook and to share a meal the top two floors were housed by four families. But as was standard in any lodging house, the other rooms were occupied by singletons. In the front first floor room, Harriet's adoptive son, William Jewell, shared with a burly omnibus driver called Charles Stansfield. Behind them, in a small back room, two domestic servants, Lizzie Cotton and Emily Sharp, shared a tatty horse mattress, as beside them, Annie and her baby slept in a small lumpy bed. And in a back room behind Harriet's kitchen, a slightly deaf elderly servant called Richard Bartholomew shared with a 41-year-old labourer called Joseph King. It was an odd mix of strangers, but everyone seemed friendly. Only Joseph wanted Annie... To be more than his friend I will, I will have her as my wife if not i will break her neck the history of joseph king is a bit of a mystery born in thurston a suffolk parish near Bury st edmund's in 1846 he was the eldest of two brothers, but since his teenage years, he had no further contact with his parents. Being a thinly built man, with a tangled mess of brown hair like an abandoned rat's nest, sunken yellow eyes like two discarded pots of piss, and a stick-like body punctuated with a beer-filled potbelly. Although Annie would have lived a better life as a wife than as a spinster, He wasn't her type. With hands scuffed, his head scarred, moods which swung from ominously distant to uncomfortably close, and having fallen from a horse aged seventeen, his tongue rasped with a croaky lisp, his leg dragged and limped, his face unevenly drooped, and the right-hand side of his skull was soft to the touch. According to those who knew him, he wasn't a bad man. He was odd, but no real bother. Burdened by a partial paralysis down the right-hand side of his body, he still earned a modest 27 shillings a week as a bricklayer. He moved to 19 Hart Street six months earlier and always paid his three shillings a week rent on time. And cheekily, if a little creepily, he referred to his elderly half-deaf bung mate as Daddy. Daddy. During his first month, she rarely saw him, as while she slaved away over hot piles of laundry, he lived up top. But when a cheaper bed became available on the ground floor, suddenly, as she would descend the stairs, she began to sense a creaking, in a silence as a sallow set of hollow eyes closely eyed her. As the weeks passed all too often Annie found the uncomfortably tight stairwell conveniently blocked by Joseph who greeted her with a raspy Oh good day again, again, again. and yet he seemed to be going nowhere for no reason. Each time, she was polite, but she never stopped to talk, as the useful excuse of armfuls of unwashed clothes or a screaming baby at her breast always seemed to hasten her step. And as the weeks turned into months, his escalating attention turned from small talk to little gifts. Often he'd give her bread, milk, a brooch, baby shoes, or money to help her get by. Being broke, struggling to save three shillings a week for the week's rent, and to keep the workhouse at bay, she knew she shouldn't say yes, so often she didn't. But being a singleton with a hungry child, sometimes no was impossible to say. On Saturday the 5th of January, 1887, just two weeks before her death, Joseph knocked on Annie's door, opening it a crack. He couldn't see his beloved hidden by a mountain of sodden clothes and thick steamy clouds which rose from her scorching iron, so Emily Sharp relayed their words. Oh, uh... I've come for my washing. He said he's come here for his washing. It's not ready. Go back down. She said it's not ready. Go back down. But before the door was even shut, Joseph was in. Inside her room, he grinned at Annie. But being too busy, Annie ignored him. Emily asked him to leave as the landlady didn't approve of any men in a lady's room. But Joseph didn't hear her, as his focus was firmly fixed on Annie, her head down and shrouded in mist. At his feet, he saw 18-month-old Henry playing on the wooden floor. Scooping the little tot up, Joseph gently stroked his head with a palsied hand, as on his forehead he planted a kiss with his wonky lips, muttering, Love him. Love Love this boy. His love seemed genuine, like he was destined to become his daddy. A little weirded out, Emily snatched the boy back and shoved Joseph out. But before this oddball could be ousted, he said these words. I love Annie Sutton. I'm very fond of her. Ten words which Annie ignored. Only to then utter, But if if I I I don't have have her, no one else shall. Annie Sutton was trapped in her own home with her own stalker. But as being in love isn't a crime, all she could do was keep a distance. Joseph was not shy about airing his deepest feelings of love amongst the lodgers. He'd talk about her most nights. He loved her, he said. The boy, too. He treated it as if he was the father. He said he wanted to marry her on Whitsuntide. But there is always a very fine line between lovesick, besotted, and obsessed. On Saturday the 15th of January, just six days before, Joseph was sacked from his job. I discharged him, as he was very inefficient and a clumsy workman, said the foreman. Later adding in court, he used to do everything wrong. He was a bit of a loony, a general butt of the jokes. He was not right in the head. With no job to do, and nothing to fill his time. Joseph drank and festered. No matter where Annie went, he was there, watching intently as she went about her life. As she cooked, she washed, she walked, and she slept. Seeing who she talked to, who she ate with, what she said, and what she did. He followed her to the shops, to the church, and even to the bathhouse. On Sunday the 16th, between 5 and 6 p.m., a former lodger and frequent customer called Mr Rolf came calling at Annie's door. As always, he knocked. She greeted him. Hello, Mr Rolf. Here you go. She handed him a bundle of clean clothes. He paid his money and left. To Annie, it meant nothing, as it did to everyone else who lodged at 19 Hart Street, except one. Ten minutes after Mr. Rolford left, Joseph was still seething. As she sat in her room, softly soothing her son to sleep, Annie's ears rumbled to a heavy stamping on the stairs and a hard banging on her door. Annie! Annie! Without thinking, she opened it, fearing an accident or a fire. But what she saw was a tearful Joseph fuming with jealousy, as a long dribble of drool spalled down his droopy lip. You have been on the floor with that man, Rolf believing that in the brief window between being handed his laundry and saying goodbye, that the couple had sex. You are my sweetheart, he cried. I put on my coat and my tobacco and pipes in my pocket, ready to be locked up for you. Like this was to be the last stand of a desperate man. Of what, we don't know. But with slow, deliberate words, he expressed his undying love for her, and rasped, I would would go up to my knees in blood for you. But whose blood? Having witnessed his strange declaration of adoration, the landlady ushered Joseph back down the thin stairwell, and calmly he returned to his room. He was agitated and emotional, but perfectly sober. One hour later, he asked Annie if she could wash his shirts, as if nothing had happened. Two hours later, he softly knocked on her door and romantically cooed. Good night, night, my darling. I'm going out. But wisely... She had bolted the door shut. Annie didn't have any other option. In the eyes of the law, he hadn't done anything criminal. He was simply a lovesick fool, talking silly. In the eyes of the doctors, he wasn't mad, so nothing could be done. But inside of his obsessive little mind, Joseph believed that he and Annie were already lovers. On the evening of Wednesday the 19th of January 1887, just one night before, Joseph lay in his bed. He was calm, sober, and slept soundly. Beside him, Richard was restless, as somehow he had misplaced his razor. He would later confirm that Joseph hadn't left their room at all that night. Likewise, in the room above, Emily bolted the door shut, and with baby Henry exhausted from a cold, the four occupants slept well, right through to the morning. Only Joseph would deny this. The woman was in the habit of coming to my room, or I to hers. Often two or three times a week, for two or three hours at a time. The landlady disliked fraternization, so it was our little secret. An affair so secret that no one heard a single thing not a bolt and lock, a creaky step, a baby cry, or the moan of its mother in sexual ecstasy. The night was silent. And although Richard may have been half deaf, he wasn't blind. So the last sounds he heard before Joseph snored was him saying, Good night, Daddy. The morning of Thursday, the 20th of January, 1887, was bitter as a cold, biting wind pierced the icy streets of Mayfair. At a little after 8.15am, with her baby still fast asleep in her bed, Annie smoothly unbolted the door, crept down the creaking stairs, and so as not to disturb the snoozing lodgers, she left the silence of the house to pick up a jug of milk and a loaf of bread from a grocer's cart on Duke Street. Oddly, it was there and then, after five days of swiggin' and sloth, that Joseph decided that he needed a job. He shot out of bed, popped on a shirt, his greatcoat, and a wide-brimmed hat called a wide-awake. And with drive and vigour, he left the room, stating, I'm going out for a little while, Daddy. But in truth... He wouldn't visit any building sites that morning, as he would only walk as far as Duke Street. At 8.50am, Annie returned. Her cheeks were flushed red from a foul wind, but the simple pleasure of freshly baked bread warmed her body, as a cool jug of milk soothed her heat-blistered hands. That day would be like any other. A baby to feed, a few shillings to earn, and a mountain of clothes to wash. Entering the hallway, it was as quiet as when she had left. No one had stirred. And mercifully, her baby was silent as she softly ascended the stairs. But what happened next was heard but not seen. Annie barked three phrases. Get off the stairs! Let me pass! Keep your hands off me! Abruptly, a milk jug smashed as a blood-curdling scream ripped through all four floors of the lodging house. Bleary-eyed and half-dressed, the lodgers peered out into the thin, dark stairwell. All they saw was Annie and Joseph, him with a bloody razor gripped in his tight fist, and her with the pale flesh of her neck ripped apart and spewing meat like a burst sausage as a crimson river flowed down her chest. Clutching her silenced throat, which bubbled as she breathed, stumbling down each step and bouncing off each wall to escape the maniac above, Annie staggered into the safety of the landlady's kitchen. Surrounded by friends, here she was safe. As lodgers locked the door, stemmed the flow of blood with a towel and gave her a brandy to steady her nerves. Only Joseph didn't follow her. He had hurt her just as he had intended, a long slow slit to stem her words. But upon this woman who had betrayed his love, he would inflict a real pain, the kind she had never felt before and would never feel again. Joseph ran upstairs, he broke open the back room door, and with the bloodied razor balled up tight in his fist, As her little child slept sweetly, he began soaring at its neck with a sharp blade, slicing deeper and faster. And unable to cry, with its windpipe severed, as veins split and arteries spewed, he slit the little child's throat all the way down to its tiny spine. So that by the time the razor was wrestled out of his hand, baby Henry's little head was almost cut clean off. The trial was held on the 28th of January 1887 at the Old Bailey to debate if Joseph King was insane. A doctor declared that he was of low intellect, but fit to stand trial. And yet his defense drew attention to his actions, an old scar on his forehead and the softness to his skull, having fallen from a horse in his teenage years. Upon his arrest, Joseph was taken to the Marlborough Street police station, where he confessed. I have killed the woman who I love." also her dear child, whilst he calmly sat and smoked his pipe. He also claimed they had sex that night, had quarrelled later and that she had jilted him, but said that the child's murder was her idea. Whilst awaiting his committal hearing, Joseph was given a simple meal of potatoes, meat and bread. Which he apparently ate with great lividity, cutting and ripping at his food with his blood-stained hands, often remarking on how the blood remained. Yes, there it is. It's still there. As he licked his fingers clean and flatly refused to use a towel or soap. I won't have them washed. These were the hands that did it. On the 21st of March, 1887, Joseph King was executed at Newgate Prison. Having been attacked, Annie Sutton bravely fought back her tears and her pain. As this recent widow, a newly grieving mother, was taken to the St. George's Hospital. For three days, doctors battled to save her life. But having lost too much blood, and all hope of ever finding happiness again, she died at 1am, and was buried with her baby. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. As always, a non-compulsory chin-wag over a tea and a cake follows after the break. Where you can learn a few extra details about this case. But feel free to switch off now if you don't like waffle. A big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Bridget Cooper, Alexis Kilday, Amanda Lamb, and Anna Bellingham. I thank you all. Your physical goodies should be with you now, and I hope you've enjoyed the exclusive goodies online. Whoa! Plus a thank you to Nicola Smith for sending me a very kind parcel of chocolatey treats in the post, which actually lasted a whole three days. I know, miracle. Murder Mar was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well.
2: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare Short-Term Plans at uh1.com. <sighs>
1: oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, what day is it? Oh, that was too long. Oh, Michael, what have you done? Hopefully you've enjoyed that, and hopefully you've gone that was a fun episode. I enjoyed that, and it's taken you half an hour, and you've got fucking hell. It was a nightmare. To, nightmare. I mean, it's fun to write. I enjoyed writing it, but geez, i a a i overwrote it. Sometimes there's things in there that are really impossible for someone like me, uh, with a, a bit of a stutter, to really try and get my mouth around. It was a real nightmare oh and even worse oh so i got up, because i'm not too far from uh, i'm literally next door to a, a golf course i'm in a nice quiet place it's really quiet here so i thought i'll get up really nice and early before for all the idiots go off to play golf and go oh I'm, I'm gonna pretend that i'm doing some business but really i'm just gonna chat to my mates and have some drinks so i got up really early to, to beat them because there's a a roadway near me as well, and they're and they're they're Porsches, and they're uh, they're Porsches that look like Land Rovers. They're horrible. They are. They really are. Uh, they're there, and I thought before they turn up and make some noise. So I got up really freaking early this morning, uh, and and uh, and the gardener had already been out yesterday uh, mowing the lawns and all that. He's out freaking this morning as well. freaking this morning. How much? How much can grass grow in a day? You bellend all because some twats just want to kick balls and oh anyway so so i recorded most of this and then i had to re-record most of this and then then the bellend kept coming back and with a slow hum in the background and then he's mate with the strimmer prick oh so it's taken ages this has taken a long time to do this this really is. so i'm going to open some windows and put on some coffee ow my legs hurt oh it's annoying listen not a freaking sound oh anyway water on i'm gonna need a coffee i'm up super early because i'm off into town they, oh where's my coffee cup why am i asking you you don't know where my coffee cup is it's there uh it's a murder mile mug as well uh which is ironic because uh, later on i'm going into town to pick up some more mugs whoa excitement hang on let me do my show oh I've got to get into my sugar pot, which is a bugger to get into. You bastard. Open, 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 open. Oh, oh, I'm going to need some sugar. I shouldn't really be on sugar because I'm on a diet. Yes, I'm on a diet. Some people get fat easily, and I am one of them. Uh, So, that's good. I'm going to open up the curtains. I'm going to get rid of my... Uh, sound protection behind me, which is basically just pill- pillows over the window, still didn't help get rid of the sound of the bell end with his mower. Oh look. Ooh. uh Egyptian geese. They're lovely. They look very nice. Right. Okay. Let's do some stuff. What else is going on? Uh, I'm not... I uh, haven't really got a cake of the week. Oh, I haven't really got any cake because I'm on a diet. I'm trying not to eat carbs i have a cake once a week now god that was a long edit uh, just i was just looking at it um uh, but so what i do is i film it every week so on patreon now i have a thing called cake of the week and you can go on there and you can support the podcast but also you get a nice little video of uh, the cake of the week so i, I do a little uh, commentary on a cake and then we, we do a close close up cut into it which people seem to love which is good ah that episode was good fun i enjoyed writing it it was it was uh, do you know what it was really quick to write i really enjoyed it i had some fun with the uh the the wording as well so i hope you did as well i thought it made a nice story that was good what else is going on i'm just doing this so uh as you know because my kettle's brewing oh i need a wee wee now but I, i don't think we're at that point in the episode where i can kind of wee whilst recording so i won't do that um uh, next Monday, which will be the Monday uh, after you hear this, uh, I, I'm, I'm prepping because I am meeting up with Police Constable Arsenal Guinness, the Metropolitan Plot. Uh and we are finally sitting down to record New Blue, which will be very exciting. So that's going to be a three-part series about, about being a copper. Copper. So it's, uh, what I'm doing is it's not going to be... Uh, uh, oh, tell me some stories about kicking down doors and going, oh, oh chummy, do you know, all the shit that you see on telly. What I want is to learn about what it's really like to be a copper. Do you know, do you know, even the stuff on this, the alleged, inverted commas, documentaries that you watch, it's not. That's kind of the the, the more exciting bits because they know that you won't want to watch something which is just, you know, a policeman sitting down having to do a shit ton of paperwork uh which is what a lot of it'll be so uh, what i want to do is kind of know more about what it's like to be a copper uh so that'll be a three-part series prepping the questions for that we'll have a bit of a giggle that'll be good uh what else is going on i've moved the boat again because we have to i'm in a nice place out in the country as mentioned next to a golf course where some prick comes by and shaves off an extra millimeter of grass every six seconds uh but yesterday uh i i decided to turn the boat i because my window's on the other side and i didn't want a window on the towpath side i wanted to, on the other side so i decided to turn the boat around uh, and then i got stuck in the mud a guy went past he saw me turning it and he was like Are you okay Are you stuck i was like no 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 just turning it mate 10 seconds after i said no i'm fine i got stuck luckily my neighbor came out and uh it was a nice chance to chat to my neighbor. Uh, uh I tried to throw him my rope. Uh he he couldn't reach it because it, the rope wasn't long enough. Hang on, I'm just going to get my uh, uh is that? Oh god, I shouldn't have stood up. That wee wee needs to come out. Oh, yuck. Ah, oh, oh, hot. Hot as you'd expect from hot water. Hot. Ouch. Uh so that's good yeah no i threw him my the 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 weird thing was i was i I just wanted to flip the boat around so i i i took off the ropes and left them on the bank uh, which was stupid because he flipped the boat around and the ropes are the wrong way but i hadn't really thought of that i was i was having one of those moments um and i left them on the on the bank and then I, I, the boat started drifting away and then it, it it ran into a sandbank and i couldn't get out of the sandbank so, I had to get my uh the, my new neighbor to throw the ropes to me uh from the land onto the boat and the the boat was too far away by about by about five by five feet and it was really annoying we couldn't do it and then eventually because I was leaning on one side of the boat, the boat drifted, and then I was able to get free. God, that was an exciting story wasn't it? Hopefully one day they will make uh a movie about it. You never know uh what else is going on i i'm the reason why I'm up early this morning. Oh, that we is on its way. Is because uh I'm off into town. I've I've ordered loads of new mugs. So there is some um some Reg Christie mugs, some Putin's customer Arsenal Guinness mud, mugs, uh some blackout ripper mugs. Uh so they will be available soon. Uh as always, as mentioned, uh they'll be available on Patreon first. So um everyone on patreon who uh, uh the patron subscribers get first dibs sorry but that's one of the benefits of being a patron subscriber is you get first dibs and you get lots of exclusive goodies so it's it's, it's worth it for like three dollars a month which is two pounds in real money you get a lot you get a lot of goodies for your two pounds you really do uh but also you get a, a, a lot of exclusive stuff that doesn't make it anywhere else so um quick slurp of coffee can just probably hear bellend in the background he hasn't got his mower out now he's got a strimmer bellend i know he's just doing his job but bellend (laughs) right let's do the quiz questions don't forget as always i might probably uh edit some of these out this was a slightly longer than i would have wanted episode uh or i might balls them up as we go into the next bit so let's do this question number one joseph did what as a job Question 2. What was the two last things that Annie purchased on Duke Street? Question 3. What was the name of Joseph's ex-wife? Question 4. What is underneath Brownheart Gardens? Question 5. Which mass murder is nearest to Brownheart Gardens? Question six. What did Richard Bartholomew, who was Joseph's uh, roommate, do as a job? Question seven. What type of hat did Joseph wear? Uh, question eight. What nickname did Joseph give his roommate, Richard? Question nine. These are are some difficult questions, Michael. Question nine. What street was the public bathhouse on that Annie went to? Uh, And question ten. What year was 19 Hart Street and most of Hart Street demolished? Right. Right. Let's do this. So let's uh, go into some extra stuff. So uh, uh, I'm going to dive straight into the stuff at the end of the story. So where the attack basically uh, happens. As mentioned, Annie had gone out. He'd kind of... uh, Joseph had said that he'd kind of gone looking for jobs. He'd been out for 20 minutes. There was no way he'd gone down to a building site. uh, When when he... uh, uh spoke to the officers afterwards he couldn't mention anywhere that he'd been so he'd clearly just been stalking annie and then you know uh seen her going to get two things that i won't mention uh on duke street see i'm getting good at this uh so what else so um uh, as mentioned he got a razor and he'd slit her throat it was quite a deep cut it's amazing that she lasted three days uh, as long as she had she would lost a lot of blood she was unable to speak um but she did last that long but apparently uh, according to the autopsy it was a very very uh, very deep wound indeed so it's amazing she lasted that long uh as mentioned uh he forced her way into her room uh her friend her flatmate Emily Sharp was in there she said she jumped out of bed um uh, when she heard the sound of Joseph coming up the stairs, I went to put this in the story, but it slowed down the story. Uh, he heard her. He heard. She heard the commotion. He heard. She heard him coming up the stairs. Uh, she went to try and st- uh, block the door. He pushed it all his might against it and pushed past her. With a razor in hand and went straight to where the baby was. Didn't even look at her. Just went straight to the baby. This was while um, pretty much everyone... uh, All the other lodgers were kind of their heads out the room. Some of them, including Harriet Pearson, the landlady, were downstairs in the kitchen um, looking after Annie... Uh, They obviously were trying to stem the flow of blood around her neck because obviously you can appreciate at that point that's what they're focused on was the fact that Annie had been attacked. They didn't know what was going to happen next. Um, uh, Emily said that uh, Joseph rushed in and went straight to the bed where the little child was asleep. Uh, There were two beds in the room, as mentioned, uh, a larger one and a smaller one. Uh, 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 Annie and her baby slept in the smaller one uh she said to him what on earth are you going to do uh uh as she rushed out for the roo- out of the room to get help and she said she's uh as she rushed out she saw him doing something to the baby's head and neck uh as she was running out she called for mr stanfield uh charles stanfield who was Uh, I can't remember if this was a question, so I won't mention that, what he did as a job. I don't think I did that. Um, So he was currently uh, downstairs. He was heading up that way. She ran out into the street and was calling for an officer as well. Um, uh, Charles Stansfield ran up to the room uh, on the the first floor, which was Annie's room. He rushed in. He saw that the prisoner was doing something to the child's uh, head. Uh, a neck he grabbed hold of him Uh, they had a fight in the middle of the room I was going to put this in the story but again do you know sometimes when you're focusing on uh, Annie and her child sometimes it's better not to put in even though th- some things can be quite interesting and, and exciting it's worth not putting them in because it just takes your attention away from the important thing which is Annie and her child that's what we're focused on here so yeah uh, Charles Stanfield had a at a fight with uh, Joseph uh, Joseph still had the razor in his hand he was fighting and kicking and swinging the, bla- uh, the razor around saying uh, you bastard I will treat you the same or you bastard i will treat you the same i enjoyed doing his voice hopefully he will come back and i can do his voice again uh i decided it was um i i was trying to work out what the voice would be in advance and i decided it would be basil rathbone with a, a having had a stroke i thought that would be a, a nice way to kind of put across uh, his deformities uh so yeah they had a fight he almost lost the top of his finger in the fight uh that was Charles Stansfield um uh, Mrs Pearson's son uh William Jewell was was uh trying to help as well but he was he was overcome he was only a little lad and also he, he suffered from rheumatics of the hand so he wasn't able to do much but uh quite a few of them um uh including Charles and William Jewell were able to subdue the prisoner as they say which is Joseph uh and they took him downstairs and held him in one of the rooms until the police came up uh they were saying that someone was in there shouting uh, king is killing the child uh someone shouted come come and take this man away um i'm amazed that someone didn't go "Ah, murder as they always seem to do in these stories uh, what else was there? And they, uh, the, the, so the, the weapon fell to the ground. Don't forget, this is the razor, which belonged to, uh, Richard, his flatmate. Uh, apparently, Richard said that the razor was on his wash basin the night before, um but then it went missing, which is why he spent the night trying to wonder where it had gone. Where it had gone, uh, Joseph had stolen it. So obviously this is a kind of a bit of a form of premeditation there. Uh, Police turned up. They went straight to the kitchen. Annie was there. uh, She got a towel on her neck. They were trying to stem the blood as much as possible. First policeman on the scene was Francis Pierce uh, of C Division, uh, police number 309. Uh, He said he arrived at about quarter to nine. Um, he went to the back room on the ground floor um in the back room which was his room behind the kitchen he saw the prisoner sitting down in a chair um the prisoner said as joseph um i got burpees uh, he said uh, he didn't say i've got burpees because that would be a weird thing to say he, although i wouldn't put it past him he said i have killed the woman who i loved also her dear child um they sent for a doctor at that point uh, as annie was still alive and still bleeding Four men at that point were currently uh, looking after the prisoner, making sure he didn't escape or anything like that. Um, the policeman went up to the room, uh, and when they got there, they, uh, the the child was already dead, as you can appreciate. Uh, his throat was cut. They basically, uh, as mentioned, Joseph was soaring at the throat, and it was cut almost right that It was cut down to the bone, down to the spine. So, you know, the death of the young child was pretty much instantaneous or as near as uh joseph was taken to marlborough street police station which is in soho it's just uh by the by the uh it's, it's not by the palace theater i can't remember uh, it's just off oxford street between oxford street and regent street uh, inspector saw him then and he made a statement uh he was seen by two doctors two police surgeons uh, and he made a full statement. Uh, Joseph said, "I am very fond of the boy. I love Sutton. Sutton is what he called uh, Annie. But she jilted me. Uh, and if I don't don't have her, I will do for her. I I will kill her." Um, uh, what else have we got? Yep. Yeah, uh, baby is dead, as already mentioned. Uh, this was uh, when he was being questioned by the police. Uh, the police were asking him what was going on. Uh, he said that he and Annie had been, obviously, as as mentioned, uh, had been uh, 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 sexual lovers for many weeks, that she would often visit him down in his room, which Richard would deny because even though Richard was deaf and that was part of Joseph's, Joseph's alibi, he would say, well, Richard was deaf, so he didn't hear us having sex in the room or hear me leaving. But, of course, Richard wasn't blind, do you know so he he could you know they're in small rooms you, you're gonna spot someone having sex next to you uh but joseph said that uh, uh the thursday before uh him and annie had had a massive argument uh and this is what this was about it got to the point where they, they were arguing it was said to be over over something as little as five shillings although we don't we really don't know what these sh- five shillings are for or even uh what it was really about um when annie came into the house that morning and rich uh, richard joseph met her on the stairs uh, 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 I don't know, where is it? Uh, uh, he said that they they'd still been arguing about the argument from the night before which no one had actually heard he wanted to make up with her but she wouldn't make up with him he said he kissed her uh and said well then my dear i must put an end to you um He said that he was very fond of her and her child and said that and she said that she uh, he said that she requested uh, if he ever did anything to her, that he would also kill her child and not leave the child to the mercy of the world, which is clearly bollocks, clearly utter bollocks. Uh, police turned up. It was easy to identify the weapon. It was the the razor that everyone had seen, which was owned by, owned by Richard and was on the floor, covered in, uh, as mentioned, two different types of blood. Obviously, at this point, they can only identify it as just blood. Um, the police inspector was James Bennett. He arrived uh, quarter past nine, so not too long afterwards. He came into the back parlour and saw Joseph sitting down at the fire, smoking a pipe calmly. Joseph said, I have committed two murders this morning, Inspector. Uh, It is a very serious matter. I lived with this woman and slept with her in the bed last night, which he didn't do, pointing to the smallest of two beds in the room, which was his. Uh, We had a quarrel this morning. It was about five shillings. I cut her throat and the child's also. I felt very strong and felt as if I could commit a lot more murders. Three men came to me. Uh, One was a big fellow, which is Charles, but I knocked him off. He's full of shit, isn't he? Uh, Joseph was also uh, examined by uh, a doctor, uh, Frederick William Spurgeon. uh, And he was seen a little after nine o'clock, so not too long afterwards. Uh, The police surgeon was called to come to the premises. Uh, He felt his pulse. He looked at his tongue, which was the thing that doctors did in that era. Uh he said he did not see any indications of delirium tremens, suggesting that uh everyone had said that joseph was sober and they were trying to query whether he was maybe an alcoholic and was going through kind of withdrawals they couldn't find any of that uh joseph again said i've been keeping company with mrs sutton she drank with me and i gave her money uh, but she treated me very cruelly uh, and turned me up As in, she betrayed me. A week ago, I told her I would cut her throat and she said, again, uh, if you do so, kill the child, don't leave it to the mercy of the world, and I have done so. Again, this is bollocks. Uh, What else we got? Uh, He went through two doctors when it went to, uh, before going to trial, because obviously they needed to check... Whether he was sane or not. Uh, they couldn't find any diseases of the mind. They said. Uh, he was. Um, they said. They did admit that the borderline between sanity. And insanity is very narrow. Uh, they did see injuries to his head. Uh, they were unsure. Whether it was kind of a sudden mental shock. Excessive fatigue. Or maybe it was drunkenness that caused him to do what it was. Or maybe he was just mental. Uh John Robert Kemp was the divisional surgeon for uh, uh, C Division of the Police. He was called that morning and he arrived about an hour later at quarter to ten. Uh, he arrived at the police station, saw the prisoner um, and he said, as far as I could judge, I found him quite of sound mind, able to answer any ordinary question. He said he found out that I was a doctor and hoped I should not think that he was insane that this morning he had committed two murders and that he could die for. He said he had been deceived uh, by two women but in the past, which, uh, as mentioned earlier on, uh, and that he did not intend to do so in a third, i.e. Annie. Uh, he said he had threatened the woman sometime previously and she had asked him, as mentioned, uh, to kill the child, blah, 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 mercy. He said uh, uh, the doctor said he seemed quite sober, Uh, and he had been drinking some days previously. Uh, What else have we got? What else have we got? Oh, yeah, as mentioned, so um, uh, in the cell at Marlborough Street Police Court, as he was awaiting his trial, uh, as is his right, he was given a small meal, as mentioned, so it was meat, potatoes and bread. Uh, He, when he was being driven to the police, uh, to Holloway Prison, which is where he stayed, Holloway Prison uh, in his last... Kind of century was a women's prison, but actually, uh back in the late 1800s, it was a men's and women's prison. Uh, he remarked to Sergeant Vine, "I should be hanged, and it should be a good job, as then I would be out of the way." He expressed a lot of kind of uh, depressive thoughts around that point. As mentioned, okay, about the police mail. Uh, the policeman who was watching him at the time said he was the one he said he ate his meal with great lividity, as in you know, really enjoying it and ripping apart the meat and things like that. Uh, but all the time, his hands were still stained with the blood of Annie and Annie's child. Uh, what else we got? Uh, um, yeah, he said uh, uh, the police inspector uh, offered him a towel and some soap so he could wash his hands. Uh, but uh, Joseph said, I won't wash them. These were the hands that did it. Uh, Again, they said that he was perfectly sober around the time that he did it, but his hands were a mass of blood. Um, As mentioned, even though she'd had her throat slit and her windpipe obviously severed and, you know, uh, things like that, you know, uh, quite horrific, the injuries to Annie, um, uh, she survived until Monday the 24th of January. Oh, no, sorry, the, the murder happened on the 24th, uh, murder happened on uh the twentieth. She technically survived until the twenty fourth at one a m so she survived three days. Uh, she was taken to St George's Hospital, which at that point was on the corner of hyde uh, on Hyde park corner um A statement said she still lingers on, but not the slightest hopes are entertained for her recovery Uh... Uh, the, the police said, sur- uh, the surgeon at the time said she had a severe cut across her throat, which was really deep and, uh, said that she never spoke a word. She was unable to, but that again, the same with her child, uh, the, the, the wound extended back, back round to her spine, um. Uh, Uh, oh uh, yeah so uh, I briefly mentioned about this but uh, Joseph's uh, injury so another doctor who was a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons uh, one of the physicians who came to uh, kind of look at Joseph to try and work out whether he was insane or not this was done at Holloway Prison uh, examined Joseph uh, to ascertain his mind he said I examined his head I found a scar upon the upper part of his right frontal region about an inch and a quarter in length there was a considerable irregularity of the bone in that situation. So much so that I thought it possible that the bone had been fractured. Uh, there was a distinct tenderness on percussion, i.e. when he touched it, it was soft. Uh, and none of the other parts of the head, uh, so it was just just where he had landed, his skull was still soft. He said that he frequently had very severe pains in that part. That about 17 years ago, uh, he had been thrown over his head of over the head of a horse pitching on its head and that he was stunned for about half a day that he remained in bed for two two to three weeks and that after that point he had done no work for 67 weeks uh that's just over a year uh he said his head had been cut and it bled very much around that time so that's when he was 17 years old uh, around the time that he's kind of he lost contact with his parents so clearly there was something going on hence He also has that kind of paralysis down the right-hand side of his body, uh, right-hand side of his face as well. Uh, He had a slight weakness in his right limbs. Uh, uh, From those appearances, the doctor said, I think it possible that there may have been some injury to the brain. I could get no history from him as of having any illness or any infection of the brain. Uh, But at that point, the doctor said, look, there's no evidence of him being of sound mind. He is uh, an extremely weak minded man. um, uh, So weak minded as to border upon imbecility. So they're saying that he is of low intellect, but he's not he's not insane. Therefore, he's fit to stand trial uh what else we got again another doctor came in and said that said that he was not an imbecile uh, he was an imbecile uh they love using that word then i'm gonna sneeze at some point uh. <coughs> <clears throat> oh dear god <clears throat> uh what else we got uh, uh when they spoke to him uh, he um uh, obviously with all of his talk about him being in love with annie and that him and annie being in a relationship and them having a quarrel and all these different things that were clearly bullshit when the doctor spoke to him uh they got the impression that he he truly believed it or, or that um when he was when he was expressing this that he was telling the truth he truly believed that he was telling the truth um uh but that these acts of violence frequently sprung from delusions uh what else we got uh although interestingly at the time the doctors said uh, the paralysis i found was a slight paralysis to the right hand side of the face the cheek and the tongue and that it is not connected with insanity thousands of people are paralyzed for life who are not insane which is true so everything that they, they basically looked at here basically said You know, yes, he's got a disability, but no, he's not insane. Hence, he was able to be tried and convicted. Uh, There was a small uh, inquest held into the death of Henry Sutton, who was roughly around 18 months old at the time. Um, uh, And Annie uh, died the day before the inquest. Uh, what else? So, uh, as mentioned, he was uh, sent to Holloway Prison. Uh, they said that while he was there, he behaved well and he was quiet. Uh, again, they said he was a man of uh, weak intellect and showed no signs of actual insanity. Uh, what else we got? Uh, tried at the Old Bailey on the twenty eighth of April, eighteen eighty seven. Uh, what else we got? Um, uh, the def- uh, the defense claimed that though he was not responsible for his actions owing to the injury to the skull but the prosecution said no he wa- he was uh, guilty of this um, he was found guilty but the jury recommended mercy upon him owing to his weak state of mind uh, mr justice hawkins passed a sentence of death instead and there was no leniency therefore he was executed um the execution took place at Newgate Prison on Monday, the 21st of March, 1887, at just after 8 a.m. Um, by this point, it was a private execution. So the, gone were the days where it would be a public execution and people would be outside going. Rawr, rawr, rawr. Uh, instead, it was done indoors. Um, there was a large crowd to assemble, but all they could actually uh, see was the hoisting of a black flag outside Newgate Prison to indicate that uh, someone had been executed. Uh, Joseph was visited in uh, Holloway Prison and Newgate Prison by the chaplain, uh, who described Joseph King as the most ignorant man I have ever come into contact with. Joseph's only visitor uh, whilst he was at Newgate, just before his execution, was his brother, uh, who came from Bury St. Edmunds, but he had no other visitors. Uh, the executioner at that point was berry Ah uh, what else have we got about that Ah, uh, oh his last real words were during the pinioning process king said there's no occasion to strap me so tight uh, afterwards he very briefly expressed regret at having killed the poor woman and her child saying he was av- aggravated by jealousy he then became faint and had to be supported on the scaffold he died instantly having been hung uh and as was required uh there was a short inquest into his death death afterwards which was deemed lawful <sighs> so there we go there we go there's all the extra details just think all the people who, who don't like waffle who don't like the the, the the bit where i talk about cake and stuff like that have missed all that They missed all the uh, the other interesting stuff sodom sodom uh slurp of tea or well, slurp of coffee Oh, from a murder Mile mug. All coffee and tea tastes better from a murdermile mug. Fact. Right. Let's do the quiz questions. Um, Okay. Question number one. What did Joseph do as a job? He was a labourer and bricklayer. Uh, he actually helped. I may have edited this out the episode. I think I said a note to myself that I'd edit it out anyway because it wasn't important. But there's a building called Ten South Audley Street. Uh, which is about two streets south of where he lived and apparently that's where he was working at that time so that building that's still there today was worked on by joseph king Uh, question two what was the last two things that annie purchased on duke street it was a loaf of bread and a jug of milk duke street is uh is this going to be a question next It is, so I'm going to shut my gob. Question three. What was the name of Joseph's ex wife? It was a trick question because he was unmarried, but he did have two prior relationships. Question four. What is currently underneath Brownheart Gardens? It is an electricity substation. Question five. Which mass murder is nearest to Brownheart Gardens? Uh, So at the Europa Hotel, it was the attack on the flight crew of LL016. Um, Some of the original buildings that these lodgers stayed in, because there was a selection of them all around uh, Brownheart Gardens, they were demolished uh, in a year that I'm about to mention. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And... Uh, to make way for things like uh, the back, the northern side of Grosvenor Square, which includes George Yard, George Yard, and the Europa Hotel, where the uh, the murder of the flight crew took place. Um, question six: What did Richard Bartholomew do as a job? Uh, like many people in that house, he was a servant. Uh, he was known as an out of place servant. Which meant he didn't have one specific job. He was kind of called to different places as and when. Uh, Question seven. What type of hat did Joseph wear? It was called a wide awake. uh, Which is a wide brimmed felt hat. Uh, Question eight. What nickname did Joseph give his roommate Richard? He called him Daddy. Uh, question nine, on what street did the public bathhouse that Annie used went to? Hang on, that's not even... On what street was the public bathhouse that Annie went to? Hard question, that's on Davies Street, uh, which is about two streets away. Um, interestingly, this, this bathhouse... Was right next to Claridge's, so the the very posh five star hotel, uh, and I think that's interesting because what it really does is it, it shows you that even in a really posh neighbourhood like Mayfair, um, in the in the uh, late victor in the Victorian era and late Victorian era, there were still many people in posh areas who didn't have. Uh, indoor baths so they still had to use the bathhouse, and it was still quite a poor area so a lot of people you know, ha- ba- going to the bathhouse was their only time that they could ever have a bath or get themselves clean and question 10 what year was 19 bath oh i've gone tired uh question 10 what year was 19 heart street and most of heart street demolished that was 1888 and that was one year after the murder. Whoa, excitement. There we go. So, uh, oh, that's all done. So I hope you enjoyed that. That's going to be an utter bugger for me to edit because that was, that was a really long edit. That was a really long record. That, that almost killed me. Oh, I wish I had some cake. I wish I had some cake. Uh, anyway, that's me done. Hope you enjoyed that. Have yourself a good week. Stay safe. Be good. Lots of love. Bye bye.